Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, the 24th of July, 2012. And Michael, a guy with the last name Hargadon should never have trouble pronouncing someone else's name. But I'm going to try this, and you correct me. Michael Carnjanapricorn. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> that was lucky. Uh, so we both had our video on, but I'm going to turn mine off uh, now. So you, in case somebody's having bandwidth issues, um, then Michael's will come through clearly. Thanks to uh, Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for helping to support the future of education, which is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, Web 2.0 Labs is web20labs.com, all about helping create conversations in education. Coming up um, as part of those Web 2.0 Labs projects, uh, the Learning 2.0 Conference, which is going to be the week of September, sorry, of August 20th, part of Connected Educators Month. Um, that should be a lot of fun. It's one of our free virtual conferences. Information should be should be posted this week. Connected Educator Month uh, does start the first, second, and third of August. The opening kickoff, for which I have responsibility. It's really exciting. Stay tuned. You'll get an email from me. Uh, or, or check the blog about uh, what's happening there. We have um, three days of great panels and keynote speakers. The Future of Libraries Conference comes up on October 3rd through 5th, and the Global Education Conference. The mothership of our virtual conference is five days, 24 hours a day, hundreds of sessions. That's November 12th to the 16th. Coming up on uh, the Future of Education, we've had to reschedule two of our shows. So Elliot Washer is um, going to be rescheduled as well as John Idelson. On the 31st of July, David Dubelbice is going to talk about social networking for professional development. He and I have been running Ning Networks for about five years, and it should be a really fun conversation together. Uh, Lee Rainey from Pew will talk about his new book, uh, Network, the New Social Operating System. Roger Shank comes back on to talk about teaching minds and cognitive science. Paulo Blickstein from Stanford on Fab Labs. Anyway, lots there. Some of that is new if, you, if you're paying attention and you're interested in the new. The ones in November, Yale Wishnick on his book, uh, Moving from a Culture of Dependency to a Culture of Success, should have great implications for schools. We're going to talk about flipping the classroom with your own videos on the 7th of November. And Kieran Beersethi, or Seti, I'm not trying to say your name, uh, who did a great TED video on teaching kids to take charge is going to come on on November 20th. Anyway, lots there, hopefully something that will be of interest to you. If you've missed any of the shows, they all are all recorded and up in full Blackboard Collaborate versions and MP3 formats. Not listed there was the most recent show, and I apologize for that. That would have been Marsha Connor on social learning. Anyway, that was really fun, but that is up there, although it's not listed at the top of that list. So this is when you get a chance to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard, you should see some icons now. You're looking for the star icon. And it's the second one down. Click on it twice, and then click on the map. Feel free to shout out in the chat where you're participating from, as well as the time or the temperature.
wherever that is, we're sure glad to have you participating. This is an earlier time of the day than usual. It is summer. We can never tell who's going to be here in the summer, thanks to Australia. And if you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate your taking the time to do so. So Michael, I, I'm a little worried that you get asked for uh, to speak or to be interviewed so often that makes it hard for you to do your job, your actual work. Um, but maybe that's a good thing that you've gotten this much publicity. Is it a funny balance? Um, yes and no. I think, you know, we, we do get asked for a lot of interviews and we've spoken at a lot of places and, it's, you know, sometimes there'll be other people from our team, but it's really amazing to see so many people are open to hearing our story and hearing about the journey that we've been on and where we're going. So um, it hasn't been too much of a distraction, um, but it's, it's been pretty good so far. So we've created a Mighty Bell space for uh, people to, to collect resources around this. I was almost tempted to put in this space um, the, and I'll put the link in the chat there, uh, meetup.com and Maker Fair because I, I feel like there are direct connections to these two kinds of programs. Um, but, but if you're interested in following up on the interview with Michael afterwards, you're welcome to um, add resources and the like and continue to chat there. But for right now, I'm going to go back to the actual uh, Skillshare site. Okay, so um, would you give us a sense of what Skillshare does? Yeah, so the, the easiest explanation is um, Skillshare is a marketplace for classes. Um, so the basic idea is we truly believe that anyone can become a teacher and every single person should become um, a lifelong student and every address can turn into a classroom. Um, so the original idea was to turn New York City into a massive campus where we can learn from all of our colleagues and neighbors um, and learn the skills that we actually wanted to learn. Um, and I think if we could sum it up is like, what's the big difference between Skillshare and you know, traditional education? I think um, we're very student-driven, meaning everything is very bottom-up and everything's democratized. Um, and we focus a lot on what students actually want to learn, whether that's something as simple as learning how to cook fried chicken. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I took a class on making southern fried chicken, which was amazing. All the way to, you know, I sit on the other side and I teach a class on um, startups and starting your own company. Um, and I've taught that to a little over 100 students here in New York. So it really spins the gamut. And what we're seeing is a lot of people get really passionate about the things they're learning and teaching, which is, you know, one of the unique traits of Skillshare and the community that's in it. So I like the language that you use, uh, especially you use the word passion a lot. It feels to me that there is a core kind of a belief in the potential and value of every individual. That's my language, but would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think you know when when we first started Skillshare and we first started thinking about the idea a couple of years ago. I think one of the biggest holes, or you know, one of the, the biggest reason people said it would not succeed was because um, nobody wanted to learn after they graduated from school. And it was really hard to become a teacher. It was, you know, probably one of the biggest reasons, you know, the education system isn't as great as it, it could be because we don't have a lot of great teachers. Um, and we had a fundamental belief that, you know, learning and education has been around since the beginning of time. 
Um, you know, it's basically part of being a human being on this planet. Um, it's part of, you know, the community, just part of who you are. And uh, people have always taught each other skills and shared and passed knowledge from generation to generation. Um, you know, with that as our initial belief, you know, we decided to see if we could test that and you know, just get people to teach whatever they wanted to other people. And, and it's been working. So I really like that, and I think that um, that resonates with a lot of people who, who participate in the conversations that I'm in. But one thing I'm worried about is that it uh, that there's a secondary narrative there that I'm not sure is necessarily a fair one, which is that we don't have many good teachers. Um, what was your own educational experience like, and um, is it the case that you feel like the teachers weren't good, or that the system didn't meet your expectations, or how would you, in a more nuanced way, kind of define the need for disruption? Yeah, I, th I think that was the feedback that we received when we were telling people about the idea. I, I, don't, I totally do not agree with the fact that there aren't great teachers or good teachers in the world. Um, that was just kind of, you know, when we told people about Skillshare, you know, that they, they would always say it wouldn't work because of this or that, and those were the major two reasons. As far as my personal experience, um, it, it was very unique and different. So, um, like everyone else, um, from a young age, my parents have always encouraged me to go to college. I mean, it was probably one of the that major milestone all the way up until I was 18 that I really focused on. Um, so when I was younger, my parents moved. You know, I grew up in Seoul. Uh, and my parents moved us and you know, our family from South Korea to Virginia just so that we could get an education in the U.S. Uh, so my entire life, you know, from middle school to high school to you know, studying nonstop for the SATs, um, you know, participating in, in as many extracurricular activities as possible, you know, if, you know, and then finally getting to college, I thought it was a massive, you know, it was a major milestone in my life. Um, so I got into the University of Virginia uh, for undergrad. It was a great experience. I learned a lot. Um, it's the first, you know, much like everyone else going to higher education or college, it was the first time I actually, you know, left the nest, if you would say. Um, but I felt like I was learning a lot of these skills and these things that put me on a path I didn't want to go down. Um, so when I was at University of Virginia, I, I majored in economics and you know, basically got a business degree. Um, and one really unique thing happened is, you know, my senior year, um, they did a lot of interviewing through Monster.com, so you were allowed to apply to as many companies as you want and interview. One of them happened to be an advertising agency. Um, I interviewed there, and I just thought it was so amazing that you could get a job doing something creative. Because um, at that time in my life, I didn't really know you could do anything outside of the traditional jobs that most students were getting. Um, so when I look at my personal educational experience, I felt UV was great and it was very traditional, um, but the education I got um, when I got into grad school, which is a business, you know, um, so it's taking a step back, I decided to pursue something in creativity, and my sister at the time went to a school in Virginia called Virginia Commonwealth University, and they had a grad school which had a great advertising program, um, so I decided to apply and I ended up getting in, and for me, I always look at those two moments in my life as um, a very pivotal moment. So undergrad, great, great, great college experience, really, really loved it and really enjoyed it, but I really um, felt that the education I got at VCU was one, is still to this date the best education I've ever received in my entire life. And the reason I say that is because it was very non-traditional. Uh, so we never had tests, we never had quizzes, 
Um, I never bought a te textbook. Um, my teachers barely lectured. A lot of it was based on it was project based learning within groups with other people. And I really learned a lot by doing. And I felt um, that I you know, learned all these hard and soft skills that I still use today. And I still would say that Skillshare would not exist if it wasn't for the education. Um, and for me, that's when I kind of really realized there's you know, a big difference between education and learning. Because um, I felt like that, you know, what, I, what happened at UVA was I got an education, meaning um, you know, I had to pick a couple of things that I wanted to major in, and I majored in those. And I felt like at BCU, I, I, you know, I learned a lot of these new skills that I, that I wanted to learn. Um, it was very tailored around my, my skills and my interests. Um, so for me, that was a, a massive, massive wake-up call. Um, and I think that really paved the way as far as thinking about education. Um, how can it be so different in, in such a, um, I guess, similar way? And figuring out you know, why can't I learn in this way? And why did I have to learn that way? And that really paved the way, you know, for the next ten years of thinking about what was wrong with the educational system. And if I had to create something, what would that look like? So I I tend to have an in, an inherent skepticism of software solving human problems, but sort of intriguingly. Uh, more and more the web as a social vehicle does seem to do that. And so you are inspired by Ken Robinson, as I recall, saying, hey, if you know how to do this kind of programming, go out and, and disrupt education. I guess my question would be, um, well, I, first the comment would be, part of what makes Skillshare so uniquely interesting to me is the fact that it would be very difficult to do this. Not impossible, but difficult to do without the technology. But at the mm -hmm. same time, are we pinning too many hopes on technology trying to solve what is much more of a human issue? I mean, you have a great, you have a great teacher you refer back to. Um, you know, how much of, of our current situation really relates to teachers impacting students versus technology as a, as a solution? Yeah, that's a question that I personally think about a lot. I think everyone in our company and our team thinks about that constantly and nonstop as well. Um, and you know, Clayton Christensen, you know, the, the famous uh, academic and writer and author, um, writes a lot about this as well. And um, when you when you read what, the stuff he writes about innovation, specifically within the education world. I think a lot of people mistake technology for innovation, and what he writes about, what he writes about a lot is that um, most people are innovating on top of a, a model that's already broken or not working. Um, and I think the you know when I think about what could the future look like and how does technology come into play, um, I think it's a it's a mixture of all those all those different factors. I think um, it would be great if you, know, you could meet people locally, but you could also learn online. Um, and the more you know, we think about it as a company, I, I really do believe in the hybrid or blended model of learning as, as probably the future of education. Um, you know, obviously, we're very biased, and we really believe in communities and groups of people learning together. Um, and we've seen the effects of that locally here in New York City. So we launched Skillshare about a, about a year ago, last April. Um, we're starting to see students you know, taking classes together. We're starting to see students converting into teachers. Um, we're starting to see some students progressing within certain skill sets with other people. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a, you know, one solution that's going to fix everything. I think it's probably a combination of many different things. 
you know, I really appreciate your humility and your thoughtfulness in answering. Um, in one of the videos that I watched, you said, um, you know, that you don't think you're going to be the expert on teaching or on change. And I thought that was a very sort of thoughtful way to to represent yourself. Um, have you thought about badges? And um, there's a big movement now for through the authentication or representation of learning. How have you at Skillshare approached that? Yeah, so um, we've always thought about like where, where does gaming and badges come into play? And when we first started Skillshare, we had pretty much like a three or four step process of how we wanted to build out our company and in what order and you know, how are we going to think about education. And the first step of that was now let's focus on the offline components of Skillshare and really build this local marketplace so that people can teach each other in the West. Because at the end of the day, you know, those are the magical things that happen within learning. Um, learning with other people, meeting you know, people that have a shared interest and passion as yourself. I'm actually interacting with the teacher and other students. Um, you know, that's probably the other half of education that a lot of people forget. I know you mentioned earlier Meetup and other companies like that. And I think, you know, um, those unique things is what makes you know companies like Skillshare and Meetup um, very special. And you know, if we go through the, the steps, I think one of the last things you know that really completes our puzzles are thinking about the, the accreditation component. The reason we haven't done badges yet um, is because we didn't really want to introduce anything gaming to the community yet, and we we're really thinking about how does that intersect with um, attaching some value to what you learn. And to be completely honest and frank, we, I don't think we've really cracked it or really figured it out for enough for us to build anything towards that. Um, the one thing we do talk about a lot internally and externally is there are great companies and great brands out there. And you know, for example, you know, the example we always use internally um, when we start thinking about what the future could look like is um, you know, Apple is a great brand. Their industrial designers is probably the best in the world. Um, what would it look like if Jonathan Ives at Apple um, taught a class in industrial design, and knowing that a lot of the things you teach will not even be out in the world yet, or would be so new and so innovative um, that so companies are leading the forefront in that. Imagine if 20 or 30 or 50 or 500 or 5,000 people around the world enrolled in that, um, and they received a badge or some type of accreditation, would that be valuable in the world? And I think our answer is yes. Um, how does that work and what does that look like? I don't think we've really figured that out yet. But um, I don't think to answer, you know, this is a long answer to your question, but I don't think, I think we think less about badges and we think more about value. Um, is kind of how we're approaching it. I'm actually kind of glad that you're not doing the badging yet. Um, I'm, a hi I'm highly skeptical of the value of an even more complex external measurement system. You know, I think uh, part, of, part of what's so brilliant about the democratic aspect of what you do is First, it's at a very core level. Anybody can participate. But second, the measure mm -hmm. of what you learn is what you are able to do, right? So yes. Yeah, and that's something we talk a, a lot about internally. And actually, there's a lot of things coming out um, within the Skillshare platform and community over the next year that really, really you know, enforces and reinforces that. One thing we talk a lot about, um, and I'm sure You've heard it throughout probably everyone you've interviewed or researched, the, the concept of learning by doing. Um, and that's really the experience I had in you know, my grad school education. 
And I, 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 I do think, you know, there's two things I always think about. Like, how do you actually prove that you master a skill or you actually know the skill? And one is actually making the thing or creating the thing that you're supposed to make. So if you are applying for a job and you're, you know, a programmer, I think a lot of people are using GitHub, which is a website that allows you to upload your code so other people can view it as well. Um, I think that speaks more, that speaks volumes about, you know, whether you pass the test or not. Um, I think the second thing is, it's, it's at its core, it's just so simple, um, but I think it's when you actually teach someone it. And I, I know there's a lot of people that are probably listening in um, that are teachers. You guys probably know that teaching something that you understand to someone that doesn't understand it is one of the hardest things you ever have to do. And I think when someone can actually pass their skills and knowledge to another group of students is when you've actually really mastered the skill or understood it enough um, to teach someone. And I think, you know, once that cycle happens, I think that, that can become very, very amazing and remarkable for the world. So there have been some great comments in the chat. Um, there's a question. If, if you're having trouble seeing all of the chat, which is usually the case in that small box, you can actually grab the mm -hmm. top of the chat section, hold the mouse down, and pull it out and make it larger. And uh, there was a question about uh, from Monica if you had read Doc Searle's Intention Economy. I'm not familiar. I, I've interviewed Doc, but I'm not familiar with that particular reference. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. So Monica, I think the answer is no. <laughs> but feel free to add some chat there. When we get to Q&A, you can take the mic. So one of the first things that occurred to me was, so not only do I sort of feel like it's important to learn to represent what you can actually do versus an external badge, but it also feels like part of what Skillshare is doing is it's helping people build up that uh, personal brand or personal value mm -hmm. to others. So uh, um, how does that work in Skillshare? Um, what, what kind of a feedback loop is there for people becoming known for what they do? Yeah, I, I, you know, when we started Skillshare, we really, you'll hear this word a lot, we really thought about the community from the beginning. Um, I think that just came from, you know, Malcolm is a co-founder, that just came from our background, not in education per se. I mean, we're, you know, I didn't, you know, I'm not a trained teacher. Um, I'm not an expert in education. Um, I think we just brought a lot of what works on the internet um, and applied it to Skillshare. And one thing that we did from the beginning is we always wanted um, to provide and integrate constructive feedback into the community so that teachers can improve over time. Um, so we always talk about, you know, if Zappos is about customer service, you know, Skillshare really exists on this planet to encourage teaching and teach teachers how to teach. Um, so the, the community works just like it would on Etsy or eBay um, or Airbnb. When teachers over time get endorsements from students, so these are public testimonial, testimonials. Um, so for example, you know, one of our top teachers, um, Avi, um, who last month made $25,000 teaching in New York. Um, we'll get testimonies from a student saying, you know, great class, really enjoy teaching them. Um, but also within the feedback loop, you know, we asked the question of how Avi, how can he improve as a teacher? Um, so a lot of students will, you know, you know, leave a lot of feedback for the teacher. Um, and it's a private message, and over time the teachers read these and they start incorporating that into the second or the third or the fifth or the tenth time they teach. Um, and over the past year, we've started seeing a lot of different teaching models that the teachers have applied based on the feedback they received from their students, and it's been really amazing. Um, and that's kind of how we, you know, work with the feedback loops within Skillshare. 
I wouldn't go to a restaurant without actually checking the reviews now for the food. That doesn't feel very harsh, but when we bring that to education, people often respond feeling as though this is um, um, scary and it makes teachers nervous. But it does feel like this is somewhat inevitable, right, in that those who are open to getting that feedback and improving are more likely to actually accomplish what they would like to accomplish. Yes, and I think that the way we designed even the product and the community, um, it's really positive. I don't, I don't think, um, I mean, I, I think this is true for any website. If, if it's anonymous feedback, I think people are going to be really mean and brutal. Um, but if it comes from a very specific person that you met in real life, um, I don't think people, you know, I've, I've been, I read, I, I, I read a lot of them and uh, none of them are really that negative. I think most people are scared of teaching um, because, you know, they don't know what to teach. Um, or they feel like they don't have anything to teach, which I don't think is true. I think everyone has something that they can share with other people. But I think a lot of people are just scared of also public speaking as well, and I think that is a huge fear. Um, and what we're starting to see in New York is a lot of people are applying the Khan Academy model to teaching here. Um, so they spend less time lecturing in class and more time like workshopping or learning by doing. So, for example, the programming class, now, after class, I know some of the teachers assign Code Academy exercises, or they'll assign videos to watch before class, but in class, they're actually coding um, together. And I know a lot of students meet in study groups um, to that as well. So we're starting to see, like, the community start shaping the way they want to learn. Um, and that starts, that starts getting replicated from other teachers. And um, we're starting to see the Skillshare community kind of, kind of break away from, you know, how they've been traditionally taught. Um, which is so fascinating to see you know, firsthand. It feels to me that Skillshare really um, lives and supports the long tail. You know, all of the yes, things yes. that previously, you know, um, w would have been hard to find or difficult. Um, do you feel as though um, this is a harbinger of a larger economy that we're going to see in that long tail? Um, I, th I think we looked at it more of a, from a different aspect. It's, you know, why can't you learn what you want to learn, whatever that is? Um, I think if you look at, you know, what most people learn in traditional education, which is math, you know, sciences, uh, foreign language, you know, those, those are fine. I think people need to learn those anyway. Um, but if you really ask them, well, what are you curious about? What are you, what are you passionate about? Um, I think you'll get such varying answers. And the line that we always use is, you know, we believe that everyone is born with curiosity because curiosity is the compass that leads people to their individual passions. Um, and I think if people could work every day on doing something, whether it's a job or a hobby that they're extremely passionate about, um, I think that leads to creativity, innovation, you know, happiness, like all those um, warm, fuzzy feelings that you, that you read about um, that people don't really associate with education. And I think we're starting to see that already within the Skillshare community. So as you're talking about that, I'm remembering that my wife and I taught parenting classes years ago. We found a book we really liked, actually took a class to become facilitators, and then held these local classes. I'm trying to think of where this kind of activity has happened previously. Was it community centers? community colleges? Are you finding overlap with places where this kind of teaching has been done before? 
Yeah, so Skillshare is not a new concept. Um, nor, you know, it's, you know, when we launched it, I think we were probably one of the first companies on the internet that really embraced education and learning on a different, you know, um, as most companies on the web. And, you know, looking around, I think this has always existed. I think, you know, to give you, to give you like a really quick history of actually how this idea came about, um, in the summer, you know, in the summer of 20, 2010, I, I, you know, I played in this massive poker tournament called the World Series of Poker. So I've been a poker player for over half of my life. It's just been an interest of mine. Um, I'm a huge gamer, and I felt like it's one of the, you know, the most complex games you can play. I decided to donate 100% of my winnings to charity, um, one, of, one, one of the charities being a charter school in New Orleans I volunteered at. And a lot of... There was a lot of professional poker players that heard about the story, so they decided to kind of coach me and teach me everything they knew to increase my odds of winning. So long story short, um, we ended up raising a little over 125 grand. When I, the, the interesting part of the story is when I got back to New York, all my friends asked me to teach them everything that, that I learned. Um, so you know, I went and created an event, you know, loaded up event writing, put together, essentially became the first Skillshare class. Um, I think for us, that was kind of the aha moment of, you know, why doesn't this exist on the internet? But when we started um, researching it, we just realized that even the word Skillshare has been around for 30, 40, 50 years. The idea of people teaching each other has been around forever. I think, you know, what we did is we just made it a very, very easy to do it through the internet. Um, and we you know, created a website and an entire company dedicated to lifelong learners and people that are passionate about the skills we wanted to share, um, which is why I think you know, it's been as successful as, as it's been even though it's only been a year. So tell me how you define success and sort of where Skillshare really is. Uh, you know, um, have, you, have you received outside funding? I think you have, right? Yeah. So. One 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 unique thing is you know Malcolm and I came from you know from startup world um, and when we first started the company we had like a list of 100 150 ideas we wanted to do we had a really hard time filtering them and you know we started talking about what could we work on you know for the next five ten thirty fifty years of our lives where we would really enjoy and felt that we made the world a better place and. For us, it was always been education, and that trend our list from 150 to one. Um, so, because we came out of the startup, you know, industry, um, we were lucky and fortunate enough to raise money from investors that were investors in previous companies that we worked at, and um, really bet on us and our company and our vision and everyone that we hired and um, all the teachers that teach to really take this to the next level. Um, so, where we are today, just to give you some specific granular details. You know, we launched Skillshare April of last year. You know, over the past year, we've grown probably like 10x. Um, we're mostly in New York and San Francisco. We have thousands of teachers that have taught on the platform. We have thousands of students that go to classes every month. Um, next month, we're going to be expanding um, throughout the rest of the country and Canada. Um, we're going to be releasing um, pretty much the online version of Skillshare and not too shortly. Um, and hopefully for, for us, our, our, our vision of where, what we want to do hasn't changed. You know, if anything, um, it's just been evolving. So um, that's kind of where we are today. So 
I really want this to be successful. Um, I, I love the idea. Um, but I also know that for every 20 ideas that get tried on the Internet, you're lucky if one actually moves forward. So I was a little disappointed that you'd actually taken outside funding because I worried that that becomes a trap, right? That it's difficult to mm -hmm. maneuver, that there's an expectation of return at some point. And we're certainly watching a lot of companies get funded in the education space that don't seem to have a good revenue model. So, so how have you balanced that? And are, are your revenues getting to a place where you feel like you can project them to being self-sustaining, or are you going to face that inevitable sort of hurdle of how do you get profitable enough for the investments? Yeah, I, th I think um, we're very lucky to have investors, um, I guess, that, that are very entrepreneurial friendly or vision friendly, um, meaning um, I think a lot of the horror stories you hear about, you know, investors getting really involved with the company really disrupting you know, the day-to-day. -day. I, I don't think we really face a lot of those issues. Like, they trust us 100% and we're lucky to have investors that really back our vision and where they want to take it. Um, as far as you know, the business model behind Skillshare, it's really simple today. I think over time it could evolve, but we take a transaction fee on every ticket that gets, ticket that gets sold. So um, if a ticket costs ten dollars, you know we take a fifteen percent fee from that. And I think as our community grows and we get more classes, um, our revenue will grow along with it. It's very similar to the, the business model that you'll see at Kickstarter. Um, as far as the expectations, I think you know part. You know we we really had a hard time in the early days, you know, with where we wanted to take this. Um, should we keep it as something fun, and, you know, something we do on the side, or? Just something that we really want to grow and spend the rest of our lives working on, or until either the company succeeds or fails. And we went with, uh, you know, let's, you know, if the bases are loaded, let's swing for the fences. And um, that really changes the mindset. Um, I think, you know, most companies raise money so they could grow much faster than, you know, without it. And that's kind of the approach we're taking. So I don't think we would have grown as fast as we did without the money that we raised, or even put together the team that we did. Um, but hopefully over the next couple of years allows us to grow much faster than we would have ever expected. Are there hurdles for people who are doing this kind of teaching already to entering into Skillshare? Like I did a search on parenting and I can't remember exactly what I found, but it wasn't much. And I know a lot of parenting classes get taught. So are, are you finding that there are certain barriers to entry that you're going to have to help people overcome to be using Skillshare? Yeah, I think, um, yes, um, most people think, you know, you know, I think a lot of the barriers we're facing right now is just the fact that we're a new company. Um, I think a lot of people will associate Skillshare with this company that's been around for years, and, um, you know, there's a certain expectation that they have when they hear about it, but, you know, we're just a little over a year old, and um, I think over the next year, a lot of those barriers that you mentioned will be, be fixed and overcome. Um, if you think about companies like Yelp, um, that company's been around for seven years. Meetup's been around for almost a decade. Um, Kickstarter's been around for three to four years. Same thing with Airbnb. You know, these communities and marketplaces take a little bit of time to build out, um, especially if you want to build it out the right way. Um, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we are going to be offering a lot of classes, um, you know, online in, in a hybrid format. I think um, that allows us to. You know, scale and, and offer classes you know, across the gamut. 
Well, for what it's worth, I wasn't as familiar with Skillshare a week ago as I am now, you know, having spent some time preparing for the interview. And I'm really anxious to try it, you know, to see if I can actually hold a class and, and if people would come. Um, I, I want to go back to the sort of the software and the education question, uh, in part because of the a lot of the funding and what might be an actual bubble right now in terms of educational technology and, and funding, um, but also because it seems as though some of the companies that have done best in the education arena didn't start out as educational programs, Ning or Evernote and the like. You're not really targeting traditional education, though, as a marketplace, right? So you fit in the kind no, of different no. category. So sort of long term, if, if there is a desire to disrupt education, can you expand beyond um, kind of the, um, the, is it the hope that the lessons learned here would move to traditional education, or how would this impact traditional education? Yeah, I, I think, you know, since the beginning, we've always tried to complement traditional education, but never really, you know, play in that sandbox. I think, you know, for us, we're very focused on real-world, you know, applicable skills, um, you know, the soft, and hard, soft skills and hard skills. And, you know, right now, I think it'll take a long time to build, you know, that side of the business um, out. And, you know, there's a couple things we talk about a lot internally. You know, when we think about the future, um, one of them being, you know, how, do, how does this work with traditional education? And if anything, I think it, it would be very complimentary. I think if there's something unique that works with Skillshare, um, whatever that is, I think there's a massive opportunity for that to really complement traditional education very well. And off the top of my head, there are a ton of ideas. There's, you know, new learning or teaching methodologies um, that, you know, come from our community that, um, it's proven to work that they can apply. Um, I think it's all the way down to, you know, if we have the biggest community of teachers and students in the world, um, we can convert any of those into real teachers at traditional institutions. Um, I think, you know, it's, it really spans the gamut of what it could look like. A lot of what we talked about in the early days um, is, you know, creating something that could work like this for the younger generation. And I think that's where a lot of my personal interest lies, is creating some type of world or when I have kids or my future kids, um, they'll be able to enroll into an education that allows them to be creative and innovative. Um, and for me personally, that's always been a personal um, agenda, not agenda, but mission, um, to create something like that. Um, so I guess just to wrap up, it's um, educating pretty much the creative class, or you know, I think Seth Godin calls them the linchpins of the world. Um, and I think that applies for any industry, um, any job, any interest, any skill. Um, and it, the only way for that to work is if it's completely student-driven and bottom-up. So I'm interested in that because it would feel to me like um, a lot of the intriguing student learning and student teaching that are taking place are taking place for free. So can you teach for free on Skillshare? Yeah, you can. The, you can teach for free on Skillshare, and the price range is anywhere from free to thousands of dollars. Um, so the average price for classes is around $30, $35 per class in New York. And um, over the past year, our top student has taken over 70 classes on entrepreneurship and product design and programming um, for less than $2,500. So it just shows you how affordable it is as well. 
the question in the chat is Skillshare clusters are location based. So currently they are all uh, offline. You have plans for yes. an online component and mostly in New York and San Francisco if I heard you correctly. Yes. Have you, have you talked to the people at Maker Fair at all? Is there a synergy there? Yeah, we've talked to a lot of similar, you know, other companies that um, we're, we're, we just love. Um, you know, the Maker Fair community is one of them. You know, we're huge fans of companies like Shapeways and MakerBot. Um, and, you know, they, a lot of them do teach on Skillshare as, as well. Um, so, Shapeways is another company in New York. You know, they teach a lot of classes on 3D printing. Um, so we're starting to see our model get adopted by a lot of other similar companies and communities. Is there an easy way to categorize where you're seeing the most activity? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of um, so the way we've been growing Skillshare is you know, we'll pick certain communities that we really want to work with and bring onto Skillshare and then we start developing curriculums for them. So the most activity you'll see is around entrepreneurship, um, technology, design, culinary arts, photography, advertising, illustration, filmmaking. Uh, I think over time, you know, we'll start opening it up more and more and more. Um, but right now on the platform, anyone could teach any skill anywhere, you know, in the country. Um, we're, we're, I guess, at Skillshare, we're really not against any, you know, we don't say you can't teach this, you can't teach that on Skillshare. We're pretty much open to anything. So you started a company called Hot Potato, right, that got acquired by Facebook? I, I, di I didn't start. I, I joined. I was a very early employee there. Interesting. Facebook acquires Hot Potato. Did Facebook shut it down? Facebook um, acquired Hot Potato for the team, and they ended up working on some key features over at Facebook. I've wondered how that. It, it was more of a, yeah, it was more of a talent acquisition, uh, more than anything. Interesting. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how some of these um, activities in educational technology play out. I'm, but a part of what I really like about Skillshare is it doesn't feel like you are marketing to the ed market, but it is an educationally centered product. So um, that's interesting. Yes, that's correct. Um, who else are you watching that's that's doing things that you feel are positively disruptive of education, um, where you're cheering them on as well as your own endeavors? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that question because I always get, you know, who do you think your competitors are? And it, it's such an odd question because, um, you know, I think everyone listening and you and everyone that's, you know, really wants to change education just kind of see education as this massive problem and looking at all these companies trying to fix it and thinking it's tremendously awesome and amazing. I think education is very complex and we're going to need hundreds if not thousands of companies trying to innovate um, in different areas um, trying to change it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually a huge fan of a lot of companies that you've probably already seen or heard of. Um, you know, off the internet, you know, I, I do research and I'm a huge fan of non-traditional schooling. Um, one of my some of my favorites include Hyper Island, which is an, a creative advertising school in Sweden. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in San Francisco and I heard of another school called Brightworks, um, which was a, like an elementary school around uh, creativity and it's very project-based learning. Um, so for me, I, I just have a, a natural, um, 
admiration for companies and schools within the traditional space that are really trying different models. Let's see online, you know, I'm a huge fan of Code Academy. Um, another company I mentioned earlier, I, I really do love what, you know, Udacity and Coursera is doing with traditional education online. I think it's amazing that 150, 160,000 people enroll into artificial intelligence course and got to learn something um, that we wouldn't have traditionally been able to learn. Um, and I think, that, you know, there are going to be a lot more companies like this. I'm really excited to see, you know, what happens. I think we're in a very unique time. Um, because this is probably one of the only times in the history of education that everyone around the world has questioned um, how it's run. And I think when people start questioning, you know, the status quo, a lot of other, a lot of people start thinking about how they can fix it. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing an explosion of startups. Um, and thinkers and writers and ec educators and academics and teachers and students um, trying a lot of different models. And I think a lot of people are very open to those new models. So I'm really excited to see you know, what happens over the next you know, one to five years. I think candidly part of what makes your story more interesting to me than many is the degree to which you're thinking deeply about teaching and learning and, and have expressed a willingness to not just come in and claim an ability to change things, but um, to learn as you go. And that actually was a part of why I liked the MIT-Harvard announcement on edX, because unlike Coursera and Udacity, it wasn't we're going to teach tens of thousands of people, but we want to actually figure out where the learning is taking place here. And uh, you're almost uniquely kind of the opposite of a MOOC. Right? You're not online, you're locally based, you're highly hands-on and relationship involved versus online with a lot less contact. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say the way, you know, we view the world is, you know, we always ask one question, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, you know, if you can rebuild education from the ground up for the 21st century, what would that look like? And I think when you ask that question, you know, the the answers are all over the place and they're all great solutions. And you know, part of you know our company culture is trying to figuring trying to answer that question and build towards that future. So we look at education first and then we start building our product and our website and our community and recruiting teachers from that. Um, and to be completely honest, for you know, one of the reasons we went offline first is um, you know, for the past 18 months, um, we've been researching different learning and teaching models nonstop. I, I think it's to the point where it's kind of a slight obsession um, of mine, and I feel like, you know, um, you know we are going to be moving into hybrid format, and within that hybrid format, um, we're going to be introducing, I wouldn't say it's an entirely new methodology of learning, um, but it's going to be completely different and unique um, based on our research within our own community, what's happening on the world. Um, and you know, to answer your earlier question, I think that's how you know, our company innovates. Um, obviously, it's really cool and unique and special that you know teachers can, you know, average people that never went to school can teach each other. But I think um, creating a methodology that actually works um, for the majority of, of people around skills they want to learn is um, going to be really, really tremendous. And um, that's kind of how we view the world and how we want to change it. 
Okay, so we have uh, about 10 minutes left. If you have a question for Michael, I'm going to encourage you to raise your hand. That's the third icon over in the participant window. That's the raise hand. Monica, if you're still interested in talking, you feel free to do that. Or you can put a question in the chat. Um, while we're waiting, uh, Michael, um, when I was thinking about this interview, it occurred to me that Craigslist was sort of a great example of something that's been done for years and years and years, where online there was a significant change, um, almost a kind of a printing press-like radical shift in how we do things as human beings. Um, is it your sense that that's going to take place in education as well, that we'll look back at this point in time and say, this, this was a moment in the history of the world when everybody was willing to reshape their thinking? I think so. Um, you, know, you know, one thing I found out in my research, you know, the idea of, you know, this concept of higher education is actually pretty new. You know, there's a quote that I found in 1939 from President Roosevelt that said, just because a kid wants to go to college doesn't mean you need to finance it. Um, and I think we're going to look back at the, you know, what's happened over the past 20 years, and I think there's always going to be tremendous, you know, benefits to traditional education or just education in general. But I think with the, the the invention of the internet and the, and the fact that everyone's more connected, there's going to be a new way of learning that's going to emerge, uh, and it's going to work. And I think, you know, 10, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and say, you know, that was an amazing time in the world, and that thing got created, um, and that really shapes the way we learn. Um, I think if you really think about it, you know, probably I think the explosion in um, innovation, innovative solutions to a lot of educational problems really happened, you know, this is very subjective in the past few years, not saying that, that charter schools and, you know, you know, people haven't been thinking about education, but I really think the mainstream attention to what's been happening really exploded in the past two years. And I think, you know, before that, probably the past, like, previous 10 to 20 or 30 years, people have always been writing um, you know, what are the problems with, with education and learning? How can it be fixed? Um, and right now, we're starting to see a lot of people you know, moving that into action. I think what we'll see in the next five to ten years is some of those companies just working very, very, very well, and those being, you know, those being adopted and captured as best practices. And I think a great example is you know the Khan Academy or Salman Khan and you know the basic flip he did. And I think we'll start seeing a lot, a lot more things like that. Um, and really, you know, it's really fascinating. Monica, you have mic privileges now. Oh, you've dropped down. Okay. If you're still, the, oh, good. Go ahead. So, um, absolutely love what you're doing, and um, see that you're connected to Behance or Behance, however you say it. I'd love to hear your thinking on that. Um, it kind of relates to my question about the intention economy. So I, I just love to hear from someone who was a part of that what their take is on that. Cool. Can you, could you just give me like a um, like a quick one one or two liner about um, what attention you know what what the okay. definition of attention economy or, or um, what he writes about? Okay. So this is my take on it. Could be completely bonked, right? Um, but. The whole idea is that the web is now alluring um, as, a, as opposed to sitting in a class and saying, here, you have to learn this. So the intention economy is now we don't, we don't have to sell ourselves with credentials because the web is helping us. Um, like you said, you know, you do something and then people would rather know that you did that. 
so the intention economy is really you're aggregating possibly your own networked individualism and then people would go to that mind map or that whatever you've created and, and they could put in tag words and search you and find out if you know that. And I see a relation to Behance with that. Yeah, so I'm sure. curious so, what you think. So for those, for those of you that I know, Behance was a, a, a company or startup I worked at a couple of years ago. And the mission of, of Behance was to organize a creative community. Um, and what they mean by that is you know, they have a, like a website called the Behance Network, which is the LinkedIn for creative creative professionals, but Scott Belsky, the, the CEO and founder, um, spent years of his life researching the most creative, most productive creative people in the world and documented how they actually made their ideas happen. So how does that tie into the attention economy? I think, you know, in the, in the future, um, a lot of what's going to happen is less saying or, you know, talking or, you know, I, I think it's less about your resume and more about what you've made in the world. And I think um, people value things that get created, whether it worked or not, more than they do, you know, um, things that haven't. And to give a very granular example, next at Skillshare, and I know a lot of other companies do this as well, so we don't really ask for resumes anymore. Um, you know, for example, someone that applies for program drama, we ask them for links to things they built. I know that's very specific for one position, but we also do that for other positions in our company as well. For someone that wants to, you know, work on a community team, we ask them for articles they've written, we check their Twitter. Um, I think basically what ha what's moving, the world is moving to a place where you can prove the things that you say that you can do. And I think that's how it really ties back into education. So thanks for that, Monica. Uh, Janine wanted to know, Michael, what's the age range of people taking courses through Skillshare? Um, it ranges. I think you know. Not too, a couple of weeks ago, we had a ten-year-old teaching a class in Vegas. I mean, obviously his, his parents were there with him. Um, but the sweet spot, I would say, of teachers and students range. It's probably twenty-one to thirty-five. Right, I would say right now is the sweet spot. Um, obviously, we have younger and older teachers and students. Um, but I would say the majority of students are kind of, you know, within that age range and. As we grow, I would love for the, you know for that to expand even more. Good. So if you have a question for Michael, please feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand. We've got just a minute or two left. So I'm interested, uh, Michael, in Khan Academy because I feel like that may actually for me, signal some of the danger areas that I see in the commercialization or the scaling of these solutions. Um, there seems to be kind of a ready interest and adoption of Khan Academy that, that goes well beyond its actual value. Um, how do you keep that balance? It sure feels as though you've kept kind of a balanced perspective on what you're doing. If you were to become as hugely popular as Saul Khan has, uh, what would you try and make sure you didn't lose in that uh, popularity? Yes, I, I think um, I, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of you know Cotton Canyon and Tom and the models that they've used. And I think you know that's going to be one of probably a dozen new models that evolve over the next couple of years. And I think um, you know we 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 do apply a lot of the you know, best practices from the startup technology community, one being talking to your users. Um, so a really great example of that is, you know, when Twitter first came out, 
Um, they never really institutionalized like the at symbol or the hashtag that we're using today. That was just something they saw, you know, thousands of their users just using that you know, as part of their vernacular and how they use Twitter. Um, and I think we've really uh, adopted the same model. You know, we never say to our community, this is the way you should learn. Um, you know, we kind of observe what's working, what's not, and taking those best practices and start piecing those pieces together and see what that looks like. And I think that bottom-up um, approach is, you know, how we're going to evolve our model over time as well. So there's a question in the chat. What do you think are the biggest low-hanging fruit untapped markets for Skillshare and growing in the next year or two? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, the biggest untapped market for us is moving Skillshare online. I know we've talked about it a lot over the past time. We didn't go into too much detail, but um, I, I, I do I do believe the best way to learn with technology is in a blended hybrid format, meaning um, students can learn online and they can also learn in person as well. Um, so hopefully for us that will come out in the next couple of years and. Let's say you know somebody, you know one of the Apple designers um, decides to teach a class. I think it would be amazing if um, you know, thousands of people enrolled from all around the world, and you know when they finish the course, they actually could show what they created. Um, I know we talked a lot about that for the past year or for the past hour, um, and hopefully we could create a model for that to really work on the internet. Um, so I, I think that's going to be the, the biggest opportunity for us, um, which is also what we're focused on right now as well. Michael, I really appreciate your coming on the show. We uh, end on time as a courtesy to our guests. Um, thanks for, for taking an hour. That's a lot of time. It's really appreciated. I have to say I'm really impressed. Uh, Thank really you. Hopeful for, for real success for you, and, and we'll look forward to seeing good things keep coming. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. So coming up, um, our next show isn't until the 31st. David Dubelbeis on Social Networking and Professional Development. Don't forget Connected Educators Month coming up in August. You'll hear lots more about that from me as we move forward. Thanks again to Michael. Thanks everybody for being here. Take care. Good night.